Welcome to the Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. My name is Dr. Adriana Popescu. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and leader in the field of mental health, energy psychology, addiction, trauma, and empowerment. In this podcast, we will be exploring mental health from a variety of perspectives from the spiritual to the shamanic and beyond. What if mental illness isn't everything we think it is? What if everything we see as a pathology is actually a possibility? What else is possible with mental health? Hi everyone, welcome to Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. I'm your host, Dr. Adriana Popescu, and I'm so excited today to have as our guest, Mr. Phil Borges. For nearly 30 years, Phil Borges has been documenting indigenous and tribal cultures, striving to create an understanding of the challenges they face. His work is exhibited in museums and galleries worldwide, and his award-winning books have been published in five languages. Phil's documentary, Crazy Wise, which we're gonna be talking about today, reveals a paradigm shift that's changing the way Western culture defines and treats mental illness. The film highlights a survivor-led movement demanding more choices from a mental health care system in crisis. Phil has hosted television documentaries on indigenous cultures for Discovery and National Geographic channels. He regularly lectures at universities and conferences worldwide and has spoken at multiple TED events. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Phil. Welcome. Thank you, Adriana. Thanks for asking me. Yes, I'm so excited to hear about um, how it was creating the movie. It, I saw it myself at a conference a couple years ago, and I was so moved. It was so powerful. Um, I have a copy of it right here. This documentary, Crazy Wise, it really is a beautiful piece of work, and um, I can't wait to dive into that. But first, I'd love to hear a little bit about you, your background, and how you came upon this work. Well... It's a long story, and I know that we only have 30 minutes, so I'm going to start in the middle of it. Perfect. <laughs> uh, um, uh, I am a human rights photographer, filmmaker, and I've spent about 30 years documenting indigenous and tribal cultures around the world. And while I was doing that, by chance, I started meeting the healers and some of the visionaries in these, in these groups. And I learned that when they were usually in their teens, maybe sometimes early 20s, they had an episode that identified them in the community, in the tribe, as having the ability to be a healer or a visionary. And that, usually it was a crisis. And it wasn't always a physical crisis like a sickness. Sometimes it was a mental emotional crisis. And in fact, of the about 35 or 40 people I ended up interviewing over that period of time, almost 75%, 75 to 80%, I would say, it was a mental emotional crisis. What we would call a psychosis. So that started me becoming very interested in that. And, and I became more interested in what we call shamanism 
the, these individuals go by different names in their in their respective tribes. But um, so I became interested in the whole process of what they went through when they would go into an initiation after they were identified. And that was just kind of a curiosity. My main work when I was working for the UN or Amnesty International or an NGO like CARE or One Heart, when I would be working for these organizations, as an aside, I would be doing this. So that was my main work. So this was just uh, like a hobby project of mine until I decided to do a short film on meditation and I teamed up with a friend of mine and she started sending me people to interview and we would interview these people together. And one of them happened to be, turn out to be the main subject of the film Crazy Wise, Adam. And Adam had had a, a what was called a psychiatric episode or a psychological crisis and he was immediately put on meds and he spent four years on meds before he had he had so many side effects that he decided to cut off all his meds at once and do a vipassana meditation retreat and it was the meditation angle of it that got him in for me to interview him then i hear about his whole story of having this psychotic break four years on meds coming off all at once and it worked which I've learned since that's one of the most dangerous things you can do is come off meds like that but it worked for him and I was just fascinated so we started following him instead of doing just a series of interviews of people who were meditating to um, basically ask them you know what it, what is happening for you with your meditation what are you getting out of this what is your technique? That was the idea going into the film. So anyway, we end up following Adam and it turns into this whole six year project of diving into the whole world of mental health, mental health care in the United States and became the film Crazy Boy. Yeah, and I love the name. How did you choose that name? It was, you know, we wrestled with names and didn't name this film till we were at least a year into it. And one of the producers, um, a friend of hers, was talking to her about it. And we were wrestling, you know, there's a thing in Tibetan Buddhism called crazy wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so I think it kind of came out of that, although I'm not sure. A friend of hers said, why don't, what do you think about crazy wise? And all of a sudden, all of us said, yeah. yeah, one word says it. And, and if you can do it in one word, it's, it's better than two and certainly better than three. I love the title. And, and I want to read um, a quote from the end of the film uh, and would love to hear your comment on this. Uh, you say at the end of the film, you're narrating, what if a mental health crisis was viewed as a potential growth experience instead of a disease with no cure? What if everyone was supported and guided to seek meaning and purpose in their suffering? Can you say something about that? Yeah, I mean, I think one of our main messages in this film 
is the way that these episodes, whatever they're labeled, be it bipolar or schizoaffective or schizophrenia, uh, whatever type, sometimes ADHD, whatever label they get, um, it comes out of this paradigm that it's a chemical imbalance of the brain that we really don't have a cure for, but we have these medications that can keep you somewhat stable while you go through your life. You may have to take them for the rest of your life. That paradigm and that message to somebody who has just gone through one of these episodes in their early teens or early 20s, I should say, late teens, um, that's frightening. And that in itself can be self-fulfilling to have a message like that, that um, basically says your brain is broken. I mean, it's not working right. We don't have a cure. And um, you're gonna have this label that has a lot of stigma, makes you in essence a second class citizen. That whole narrative, that paradigm delivered to somebody in that state of mind it's almost like casting a spell on them. And, and all of a sudden, you're the second class citizen as somebody with a mental illness and a handicapped person with a mental illness. So um, that's one thing. The other thing is um, it's important to find some meaning in this, in this, episode you're going through because they're very, very different. I mean, all of a sudden, now, by the way, I'm speaking from, as a journalist, I've never had one of these episodes, but I've interviewed well over a hundred people who have, and there's really interesting common denominators that go through these episodes that uh, make it very interesting to me. But when you're in one of those states, um, Number one, you're very su suggestible. So having a message like you're typically given in mainstream um, mental health care in the United States is, as I said, very injurious. The other thing is, it's good to have an idea of what these, what these are all about. And what I learned in the world of tribal and indigenous people is that they're immediately given a meaning for it. You've got this special sensitivity. And yes, it's difficult. But we are going to work with you and teach you how to handle this and work through it. So they're given a meaning. You've got a special sensitivity that can be very valuable to us as a community. But you're going to have to go through this initiation process that you'll have a guide for that. And not only is it just a guide, but it's a guide who themselves have gone through one of these experiences. It's like what we would call today a peer, somebody who has actually experienced it and they can help sort of hold your hand as you go through working with this and learning how to work with these energies that are essentially a gift to you. Yeah. If, if they're handled correctly. Yes. And yes. only if, because yes. they're very dangerous if they're not. 
Right. And I wanted to specifically use that term, a gift, because it's, it's mentioned in the film. And, and the term, instead of calling it, you know, in Western medicine, psychiatry, we are calling them pathologies. We're basically saying, like you said, your brain is broken. There's something wrong with you, which is so invalidating for people. Whereas when you talk about the uh, other cultures, they are validating that person's experience. They're saying, yes, we know what this is. This is a gift. You're hearing voices. You're having visions. Whatever it is, that is a gift. In fact, it might even be a calling of some sort. Can you say more about that, the calling? What, what did you discover? That's typically what they look at it as in general. I mean, there's differences from tribe to tribe and community to community. But basically, it's looked at as a calling that you have to answer. And by the way, many people resist it because it's a lot of work being a healer. And typically, the healers that I interviewed and the visionaries that I interviewed, it was in addition to their normal work. Like one woman had five children, five young children. And now she is the healer visionary of her community in the Samburu tribe in Northern Kenya. Well, now she has an extra load of work to do. And typically what I found, and it was interesting to me, many aren't um, paid for their work. This is a volunteer, or this is service in its purest sense. So, um, they're, they know that, and so many people do resist the calling, actually. And, but it's, it's, it's considered something that they have to address, or they could get very sick and possibly even die, they were told. Some, like I know a Navajo man was told that. And several other people I, I talked to were, many thought they were dying in, in the process, because it turns out this process of going through this is an ego death. It's you're dying to the way you thought of yourself in the world as this separate entity that is the subject and everything else is objects in the world. You go into this sort of non-dual state where every, you're just part of this mosaic that is everything. And that is, can be a very frightening experience. Yeah. And it also can be a very powerful experience. You know, you talked, um, I think it was somewhere in the film, they were talking about um, how people can have this also like experience of oneness, right? Like kind of what yeah. you're talking about, the non-dual state. And you're right, that can be terrifying and exhilarating. Um, we, you know, people who are having these, what, what we more, I would say, progressive um, holistically oriented therapists might call um, these awakening experiences or these spiritually transformative experiences, um, that they can be incredibly powerful, but they really deconstruct your whole, it's like your whole worldview kind of can fall apart. And that can also be terrifying. That's right. That's right. Especially if you have people around you that you're trying to, yeah, what I've heard so many times is, I start going into the space, like Adam in the film says, it was very exciting at first. It was like, 
it was the first time I really felt a part of the universe where I was it, it was me. And then I kept going and I went way too far. Well, in the, in the film also, his mother comments on what it was like. And she says, all of a sudden, he started telling us a math equation that would solve all the family's problems. And, and she says, of course, it made all the sense in the world to him, but of course, to no one else. I mean, of course, he's crazy, you know, as in essence. And so I've heard it so many times. I was trying to get across what I was feeling, what I was going through, but no one was getting it. And, and all of a sudden, I realized I feel so connected and a part of everyone and everything. But my mo own mother looks at me with fear. There's something wrong here. And that when you buy into, yeah, there's something wrong. You're buying into the fear when you're in that state of, when the person is in that state of extra sensibility, extra su suggestibility, and it is a recipe for just going and spiraling down into a fear state and thinking, yeah, there is something wrong with me. I'm broken. And um, that becomes self-fulfilling can become self-fulfilling. Yes, yes, yes. You follow also, in addition to Adam, you follow the story of a woman named Ikaya, who at one point, you know, was just in and out of the mental health system, and at one point was suicidal, right? Because she just couldn't deal with the intensity of her experiences, and she wasn't getting that validating support from the treatment system. Yeah. And she, like many, many of these episodes are kicked off and have a history of childhood trauma behind them or adverse um, childhood experiences of some sort. And in her case, it was a molestation by her father. And that um, was something that would come up in her and, and, and she didn't know what it was or that that feeling had any connection with what happened when she was five or six years old. But um, so, yes, it eventually led her into a suicidal place because those energies, the, that, that trauma that she suffered was still a part of her. It was in her body. It was in her, her whole being and those energies have to be dealt with at some point or they end up driving you to whatever in her case it was depression that led to suicide attempts yeah but she ended up kind of miraculously she's african-american she ended up with a um african sangoma which is a native healer in south africa and this woman happened to be living in Baltimore. Akaya was living in New York. She started going through an initiation with this woman who just reframed her whole experience and, and got her in touch with those deep feelings and had her go through various processes that we didn't document. We were just told about. 
But basically, what she said, I had to face all of those feelings as they came up before I could release them and let them go. I had to face all the people I hurt. I had to make amends. It almost sounded like a little bit of a 12-step program in a way. And, uh, um, but I mean, she is doing fantastically now. She speaks all over the world. She has a whole um, bunch of clients that she works with and, you know, just totally transformed her that going through that, init that initiation that there's no, no counterpart here in our Western culture. No. And unfortunately, you know, it's, it's so difficult with these medications because on the one hand, you know, when a person is in that much distress that they can't even function, you know, sometimes the medicines have their place and helping a person be able to sleep or get up in the morning and things like that. But also what they do, what they can do, and many, you know, patients will complain of this is they can numb them, you know, where the person no longer has access to their emotions. And so doing that deeper work that you're talking about, whether it's in like a therapy session or in, you know, some other, um, uh, even shamanic healing practice, whatever it is, um, the person can't access those emotions to be able to process them and work through them. And people in the mental health system, the, what we would call the severely mentally ill, which is usually the schizophrenics and things like that, they usually don't even get therapy. They get case management, which is all about, mm. right? Like, do you have a place to live? Um, do you have a bus fare to get around? Are you taking your meds as prescribed? Do you need to go to the doctor? It's all about basic living skills. They rarely actually get mental health therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's an important part of it, having safety, having a place to live, having good food, being able to get a good night's sleep. And that's, and I do want to say this. Yeah, we didn't, of all the people we interviewed, of the psychiatrists, psychologists, mental health workers, um, sociologists, everybody said that meds have their place. Um, definitely. But they're way overused. And, um, and they're looked at as something to keep a person on for a lifetime. They should be crisis management tools. Get enough sleep. Um, and get some stability so you can start working. Some people, um, I guess, can't get into that place where they can heal, and that's unfortunate. But I, I think the majority, if they're gotten too early in their crisis and it hasn't gone on for a long time, um, can work through these issues. And as you know, you've gone through your training with um, transpersonal psychology um, that was started by Stan Groff, or he was at least one of the leaders in the whole movement. And I asked him when we interviewed him, you know, what's the differential diagnosis between psychosis and somebody going through what they call a spiritual emergency or a spiritual emergence? And he said, well, there's really no differential diagnosis because there's no initial diagnosis of psychosis. In it, there's no blood test. There's, you, there's no urine sample. There's no tapping the cerebral spinal fluid to find out what's going on physically with the person. 
it's all based on behavior and the feelings that are related to you by the patient. So he said, the way we determine whether we can work with a person and help them go through this process or not, as if they feel that the process is inside them, internal to them. It's something that's going on inside themselves. Um, then we can work with it. If they think it's an external problem, like it's the mafia planting um, microphones in your house and, and watching you, if you go into those paranoid states where you think the external is working against you, he said, those are much harder to work with. And typically, you get into those, the person gets into those paranoid states after a, a period of time, mostly when these episodes first strike, they're interesting. And uh, more of the people I've talked to have said it, it had this sense of oneness and they, they try to put it in words. You know, it was like I was everything and yet I was nothing or I couldn't tell where I ended and everything else began or um, it, it's kind of ineffable. There isn't really a language for it. So um, when they're wrestling in that place of wondering what it is and curious and trying to find out, that's when it's really easy, more, more easily to work with the person and frame it for them and give them the support they need to go through and work through those feelings so they can be integrated into their lives. In the film, um, you know, you, you guys refer to uh, the, some of the people you interviewed, some of the clients or patients as survival, survivors of the mental health system. And, um, and that what if instead, you know, we looked at it as a recovery movement where we are creating these networks and groups and ways to support people. T tell us more about that. What is the recovery movement? Well, you know, this, there's, it was once called the survivor movement. They survived the current paradigm, the current mental health care system. And then it got into the recovery movement. And even there are people that object to that phrasing because the recovery movement to them indicates that they're recovering from a pathology when they don't believe it was a pathology. They believe it was an opening. It was an opening into another way of consciousness, another way of being in the world. So, you know, the, the, names, for, <laughs> the names for these, uh, this movement and um, the episode itself, there's many names, but in essence, it, it is, are you looking at this as a potentially positive growth experience? Or are you looking at this as pathology? And, um, and, and that's the dichotomy. And in recent years, so many um, groups have now appeared, uh, and a lot of them are peer-led groups, like these grassroots kind of peer-led support systems, the Hearing Voices Network, and then, you know, all these variations on that, where they're looking at it exactly from that perspective. What if this is a gift? What if this is a, a capacity of some sort? 
Um, what if this is an opening and an awakening, not a stigmatizing pathological process that you'll never recover from? Um, what did you discover about the people who um, maybe once were those survivors of the mental health system, but now had discovered these other groups for ongoing support? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's been huge. And it's largely happened on the internet, you know, mainly because they could get on the internet anonymously in the beginning, when it was so stigmatized to even mention that you've had anything, and it still is. But I, I can tell you, after going through hundreds of screenings of this film in Western Europe and Eastern Europe and here in the United States and in Canada, um, there are people that stand up at the end of the film, yeah, almost always, and there's somebody or maybe more than just one or two, there could be 10 or 12 people stand up and say, I've never said this before, but this is what happened to me. I've never said this in public before. And um, I, I think that was the thing that really cemented my dedication to promoting the film as long as I have. I usually go on to the next project, but I, I realize that that's what's going to change things is people standing up and saying, yes, this happened to me and I haven't wanted to talk about it. Because let's face it, if you have that label, it limits you, you know, in getting a job or getting a mate. Uh, you, you know, if you're considered this person with this defect, this pathology, it's, it's not a good thing to have on your resume. So the more people that can come out, and especially people that have successfully navigated the crisis, and they've learned how to handle it, and usually what happens is when you go through that, and you've gone through that essential oneness or unity feeling, you usually end up, and, and especially if there's a lot of suffering that you've gone through, with a lot more empathy and compassion, which makes you very good as a healer yourself. And, and the people that go into the healing professions, especially mental health professions, after going through this as a peer, or they want to start a movement. I know one person started... Um, families healing together, Krista McKinnon. And um, it was for parents of, of children that have gone through this. And often it happens while they're away at college and it's a very frightening thing for everybody. Um, that these parents could get together and talk anonymously online and start saying what worked for you, what didn't work um, and support each other and in, in going through this and being able just to talk about it because that's a relief in and of itself. Yeah, so many people, like you said, are afraid to even talk about it for fear of being labeled. And, and they think, you know, they're the only ones suffering with this. And when they finally recognize that you're not the only one and, and this, this is a thing that happens for a lot of people, um, it's, it can be so relieving right? To know you're yeah. not alone, to that others understand and others don't judge. It's the judgment, that stigma 
that is so destructive. That's what I see all the time. Um, and I love that your movie offers, and the message really is one of hope, like offering people um, the possibility that, that this could be a positive experience, as you said, not this horrible, really destructive, potentially life-destroying experience. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, you know, I want to say a couple of things about what I've learned since this movie came please, out. Please, I was going to ask you. Yes. <laughs> um, so it came out three years ago. It was, we opened here in Seattle at the International Film Festival here. And um, so I've gone around and, and taken it to various screenings and been at various screenings where it's been hosted. And as I said, it's been very enlightening. I've gotten to speak to a lot of people that have had these experiences. But the other thing I've been doing in this time is I started interviewing people that are studying the neuroscience around these episodes. And um, especially this group in London at the Imperial College of London, although it's been studied elsewhere quite um, extensively now, and there's a network in the brain called the default mode network that is, it was recently discovered. I mean, it's not been um, known for, known about uh, for that long. It was discovered in 2001. And since its discovery with the new imaging techniques they have, the fMRI imaging techniques of the brain that measures blood flow in the brain, they can start mapping out these networks in the brain. So it isn't just that this part is the vision and this part is the motor and this is auditory. It's how these different parts of our brain work together to do these, um, what they call metacognitive tasks. And these are some of the more abstract functions like our sense of time, our sense of self, how, how we build this concept of ourselves as being separate from everything else. They call it the referential self. And how these models are built in our brain. And, and it's housed in this network and created in this network called the default mode network. And when that network shuts down, either... And they're studying it with long-term meditators because there's ways of shutting it down. It can be shut down intentionally through long-term meditation or all the new, um, the Renaissance and the psychedelic um, discoveries that are going on right now at all the major universities across the country and in Europe. Um, so a psychedelic experience long-term meditators like monks who have meditated for hundreds of thousands of hours, um, their default mode networks are quieted way down. And that's the same network that houses our sense of time. So somebody in those states, time, you could be somewhere for three minutes and it might seem like you were there for a week or a couple of days or you could be somewhere for a whole day and it seemed like it was just a couple of minutes. Time starts to distort. And the other thing is you get this sense of unity and oneness. 
Now that can be produced after long terms of meditation or a psychedelic experience, but those same symptoms happen in what we call psychosis. And now they believe that that's what's happening in a psychotic episode. That default mode network is coming down, is shutting down a bit. And so what is a mystical experience, thought of as a mystical experience or a spiritual opening, is starting to overlap with what we consider a psychosis to be in terms of the symptoms that are expressed. And so this, um, this world of thinking of ourselves as being our separate selves as being an illusion is something that the mystics and the Buddhists and the Hindus have talked about for millennia. <laughs> Uh, is all of a sudden kind of being corroborated in science, in the neuroscience field. And that's what I find very interesting and exciting. Yeah. The, as you get deeper into the science, the spiritual and the science become like this, right? Just talk they to start a coming together. Yeah. Talk to a quantum physicist about that. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh my goodness. This has been such an amazing conversation, Phil. Um, if you would like to leave us with, um, give us a sense of your vision. Like, what are you hoping that the film and your work and the things we're talking about today, what would you like to see happen with all of that? Uh, well, you know, uh, the film, as I see it, is just a part of this movement, whatever you want to call it, this movement of understanding these non-ordinary, what I like to call extraordinary states of consciousness. And, um, you know, at this point in time, I think people who go through a crisis are given a challenge and they're given an opportunity for transformation at the same time. And if it's handled right, it can be a great transformation into a higher way of being. And I actually think that we as a human society right now are going through one of those times. Look at what's happening. I mean, we're not only we have COVID going on, um, worldwide pandemic, but we have this division like I've never seen before. You know, I'm 77 years old, so I, I've been around for a little while. I've never seen it like this in terms of the divisiveness in our government. And um, I mean, I was born right after World War II. Everybody was together. We had to all come together to fight that enemy. But now we have another enemy that's worldwide affects humanity all the same. We should be coming together on this. And to see us unable to do that right now. So one of my, this gets into what one of my hopes are, is that yes, that we can start viewing what we are, we, that we're all in this together. And that's one of the things that happens in a, psychotic episode they get that sense of yes we are all the same we're all in this and it's um hopefully 
we can go through a crisis like this can lead us into that place where humanity can take the same jump that individuals can take. I love it. I share your vision. It's why I'm doing the work that I'm doing and trying to get the word out there. Um, there is a different way to look at all of this. There is hope. Um, and yes, what if the individual's um, ex transformational experience is also part of the the, the microcosm, you know, of, of what's happening for humanity, you know, like the, holo yeah. the hologram, you know, that I internally and, and there is no separation between me inside and me outside, right? I mean, right. And, and it's so, it's just such a beautiful thing. I'm so grateful to have had you here today, Phil. How can people find you if they want to find out more about your work, either with Crazy Wise or with your photography or any of the other projects you're working on? How can they reach you? Um, crazy Wise is crazywisefilm.com. And you can watch the trailer there. We have a whole resource page for alternative ways and alternative practitioners that look at these crises in, in a more holistic way. Um, you can watch the film there. Uh, in terms of my photography and my film work that all led up to this, that's on philborges.com and that's B-O-R-G-E-S, Phil, P-H-I-L, one L. And, um, yeah, those are the places that people can get in touch. And I try to um, talk to as many people as I can that give me a call. And we get calls all the time from people that have are either in this experience or going through it. I'm not a <laughs> clinician, but I can certainly talk about what people have told me about it. And um, many people find that helpful just to know that they're not alone, you know, in this process. It's a natural process of growth. I almost envy, in a way, the people that have gone through it because I try to do it through meditation and it's, um, it's, it takes a long time that way. But uh, I know it's very challenging to go through these experiences, but I, I really admire the people that do and are able to navigate it. And more and more people are all the time. So. And thank you so much for showcasing their stories. Um, and thank you to all the people who participated, you know, yeah. in the making of the film. It truly is a gift. Our conversation has been a gift and you fill our gift. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you to all the viewers and listeners who checked in. If you wanna find out more, I'll have all of Phil's contact info in the, um, in the everything he referred to, his website, The Crazy Wise Film, we'll have it in the show notes. And um, if you wanna join our community, we have a Facebook group, Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, where we go into deeper conversations around these topics. Feel Absolutely. free to join us there. Yeah. And thanks again to everyone and my wonderful guest. We'll see you next time on Kaleidoscope of Possibilities. Bye-bye. All right, Adriana. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. This has been Dr. Adriana Popescu. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe and share with others. To find out more about me, my guests, and more, please visit my website at adrianapopescu.org. See you next time.